0: Hello and welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon. I'm an astrobiologist and an author. Sometimes I'm a musician. Sometimes I'm a Star Talk All Stars host. And I'm here today with my co host, my good friend, Chuck
1: Nice. Hey there, Dr. Funky Spoon. How's it going, Chuck? It's going well, man. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. It's been a little while since we've uh, been behind the mics together. Yeah, it's, it's great to see you. It's great yeah. to be back here
0: and today we're going to be talking about exploring the planets and what we get out of that that helps us here on earth specifically we're talking comparative planetology what we learn by comparing the planets and how that knowledge helps us understand some of the problems the environmental problems we're facing here on our home planet and for that conversation we have a very special guest today my old friend Ellen Stofan, uh. and um, I, I mean, neither one of us is old, but we I guess we are old friends, so it depends on how you add it up. But Ellen is a planetary geologist extraordinaire. She's been involved in many interplanetary spacecraft missions. She was very involved in the Magellan mission, which is the, the spacecraft that unveiled Venus mm. to us. She's studied ice volcanoes on Saturn's moon Titan using the Cassini spacecraft. She studied volcanoes on Mars and on Earth, and uh, she's one of the people that's really helped us synthesize our knowledge of the geology of planets and how they, how planets work. Really, she's the author of a of a great book along with our our um, common friend, uh, ta- astronaut. Tom Jones, a book called *Planetology*, where they put together a lot of this comparative planetology information. Uh, she is the former chief scientist of NASA. Whoa, that sounds pretty impressive. That is,
1: that's a great like. I, I would lead with that.
2: It's a great title.
0: Yeah, and she, and she, yeah, and, she, and she's she's done a lot of uh, in addition to her science of sort of helping to shape modern planetary exploration. So. Ellen, it's great to have you here as a guest on uh, Star Talk All Stars. Thanks for being here.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to be with you guys today.
1: Yeah, and just to uh, just to keep things uh, or to kick things off on a super scientific note, what's your favorite planet and why? <laughs>
2: oh, that's such a hard one. Um, while I love the Earth, my favorite body in the solar system is Titan, uh, Saturn's moon, because it's the only satellite that has a substantial atmosphere. But even more importantly, it's the only other place in the solar system where it rains, there are rivers and seas, but they're filled with liquid hydrocarbons. Uh, So incredibly like the Earth in some ways, and then incredibly different in other ways. And I actually had proposed to NASA to land a floating probe uh, on one of those Uh, lakes which would have been so cool
0: yeah that's such a cool idea it would be the first nautical exploration of another planet another world
2: (laughs) yeah but um unfortunately we didn't make it all the way but someday before too long i hope we'll be sailing on an alien sea
1: We'll, we'll do it
0: i'm impressed actually to hear you say that uh the Titan is your favorite planet. You prefer it over Earth. So I mean, if you had to live on one of them, which would you pick?
2: Well, you know, I always like to come back to this point, there's only actually one body we can live on in this solar system. So when people start you know, you start hearing things of people saying, oh, we're going to go live on Mars someday and that's going to save the human species. You're like, no, we have to make sure this planet is actually habitable because this is the only one we can actually live on.
0: Yeah, yeah that, that's a cop out that low. We'll, we'll, we don't have to worry about Earth. We'll just all go to
1: Mars. Uh, no, that's not the right reason to think about going to Mars. Yeah, people have been watching uh, too many uh, Schwarzenegger films. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, well, so let's let's talk about comparative planetology um, you know there it's it's such a um, fruitful subject and um, you know it's almost hard to know where to start but maybe we should start with the most obvious um, point of necessary comparison right now which is climate Um, because one of the things we do when we study other planets um, is look at their climates and it's very interesting to compare them to earth and it expands our, our knowledge of how climate works on planets, which, of course, is a kind of knowledge that we, we all dearly need here on Earth right now. You and I, Ellen and I, uh, were, were um, involved actually in a, a teach-in uh, at, the, at the Science March in Washington, D.C. with a colleague of ours named Adam Frank. We went one of those tents by the, by the Washington Monument. We did a little teach-in on uh, planetary climate Um, and it was, it was, it was great. It was packed. Now that might've just been because it was raining outside, but the tent (laughs) was full. And it seems to me, and I'm curious if this is your experience, that it's kind of a neat way to talk to people about the subject of climate because the subject has unfortunately, maybe unfortunately become very charged. And so if you start talking about other planets, in a way, it seems like you're changing the subject, but then you can kind of round your way, you know, wind your way back to, Uh, the subject of climate change. Have have you found that that's that's useful in conversations?
2: You know, I really do, because um, the way I like to use the analogy with people is if you were a doctor and you only had one patient, you might start to understand why that person gets sick or why they get better, but you'd never understand the progression of disease, like cancer, unless you have lots of patients. So as planetary scientists having multiple planets with different climates with different amounts of greenhouse gases in their atmosphere really helps us understand fundamentally how does climate work what are is the role of greenhouse gases in an atmosphere and i find a lot of the times if i start talking to people about planets and is there life beyond earth you know they're with me and then i can segue into climate where they've brought baggage with them. You know, maybe they have a relative who doesn't believe in climate change, Mm -hmm. or maybe they have some other reason to doubt climate change. But if I can find common ground, which is, wow, space exploration is cool. Okay, now remember the Earth is a planet. Let's start looking at it like that.
1: See, I think you're going to have a lot of people who will disagree that Earth is a planet. (laughs) because that's the way the climate discussion is going right now well these people are 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 stuck in
0: the uh, 16th century i guess but uh you know we can't bring everybody along in the conversation (laughs) but i agree i I found i found that useful i i found myself in the office of a um a a, congress person who is uh known as a quote climate skeptic um and uh I was like, "Well, how am I going to talk to this guy?" But uh, but I found out that he was a huge fan of space exploration, so I just started talking about Venus, and then we kind of segued into climate, and it, it sort of felt natural, you know. And so sometimes it, I mean, it's it's both true on a practical sense that studying the other planets does help us learn about Earth climate, and in ter- in, in a sort of communication challenge sense, it's also useful right now at this time when people are sort of freaked out about climate as a way to kind of get into the subject from from a different route.
2: Yeah, I think people just don't realize, you know, we take these models that we use for the Earth, we apply them to Venus, we apply them to Mars, we apply them to this moon of Saturn, Titan, and we say, where are these models not working? How can we make the models better? And so by iterating those models at other planets, we're actually, again, helping move our understanding of our own planet forward.
1: That's pretty cool. So you're studying other planets. And how exactly do you uh, apply the model of another planet to Earth?
2: So one of the things we do certainly is go and look at what What are the gases in the atmosphere? You know, really fundamental. How much sunlight reaches, you know, how far away is that planet from the sun? So how much sunlight is actually heating up the atmosphere? What are the gases? What's going on on the surface of the planet to maybe change the composition of the atmosphere? So you really have to start looking at really basic questions. You know, what's there? What is it made of? How far away from the sun is it? And then you can start building up an understanding to feed data into a model to say, all right, what do I predict the temperature on the surface of that planet would be? And that's, again, goes back to how do we understand the role of greenhouse gases in a planetary atmosphere? Because we do, we are able actually to predict the s- surface temperature of these planets pretty accurately.
1: Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it
0: is. It's 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 really neat. I mean, it's neat that it works. You know, <laughs> it, it, it makes me feel better when I go out there and talk about climate and stuff. You know, you, as a scientist, you always have nagging doubts. What if I'm what if I'm wrong? I mean, you're supposed to, as a scientist, doubt everything. So the fact that our climate models actually work and we get the right answer for the temperature of Venus and Mars and Titan makes me feel good. It's like, yeah, we know what we're doing. <laughs> this stuff works.
2: Yeah, because yeah, you know, big part of being a scientist, like you say, is to always like not fall in love with your theory, not fall in love with your your idea. So you have to be constantly pushing, pushing, questioning, and the other planets allow us to push on climate and our understanding of climate to help us understand this planet better.
0: Yeah, that 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 aspect of it also just puts us in sort of a weird position when we're supposed to go out to the public and be like defending our knowledge against attack and stuff because our mindset we're trained to always be doubting. If you're a good scientist, there's part of you that's thinking, "Well, what if this is wrong?" You know. So we're supposed to have that mentality. At the same time, we're going out and we're saying, "This is right." <laughs> you know. So we need we need everything we can to sort of convince ourselves, and and it it, it really does hold up. I want to ask you more specifically since since we've got the uh, person who maybe I would describe as the premier comparative planetary volcanologist um, in the solar system, um, about comparing volcanoes on planets. I mean, one thing... Uh, bringing it back to climate on Earth is the role of volcanoes in these sort of... Oh, my gosh, how embarrassing. I didn't turn my phone <laughs> on I'm such a pro wow. host. You know? <laughs> I've got the skills here. All right. Where were we? Uh, volcanoes. Um, that, that was actually uh, somebody calling and saying, wait a minute, I'm the premier. <laughs> exactly. It was Ralph Lorenz. No. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, um, the role that Earth's volcanoes play in climate... Is there anything like that mirrored on, say, Venus or Mars? I mean, where it's not just a geologic phenomenon, but they're also the volcanoes are putting out gases, and they're they're part of the climate cycles and climate balance.
2: Well, I I think what a lot of people don't understand when they think about climate, they think, oh, that's something that takes place in the atmosphere, but it's actually controlled by things that are going all the way from the interior of the planet, Mm. um, which controls whether or not a planet has a magnetic field to what's going on on the surface, how much volcanism is there, to the very outer reaches of the atmosphere and how that's interacting with the solar wind, the stream of particles coming off of the sun that can erode the top of an atmosphere. So climate really goes from the core of a planet all the way out to beyond the top of its atmosphere. So you have to study all those different bits of it. And volcanoes are really interesting because that's the interaction between stuff that's in the inside of a planet. So when a volcano erupts, you have carbon dioxide come out, sulfur dioxide, you have all kinds of gases coming out. But the one thing for the Earth, and I get challenged on this a lot, is people saying, "Oh, it's volcanoes causing the climate to change." Volcanoes play an important role in the climate of this this planet, in the climate of Venus, in the composition of Venus's atmosphere, in the composition of our atmosphere. But we understand that effect. It's well constrained. And it is not what is causing our climate to be warming at the alarming rate it is. That is due to human uh, use of fossil fuels.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it, you can work out the numbers, and you look at it's an impressive amount of CO2 coming out of out of volcanoes. But it's simply not enough to explain the uh, very well-documented increase in CO2 that's, that's happening now. There's something else going on, and it's, it's us. Um, what about on Titan? You see these these ice volcanoes, and um, strangely, they look sort of like rock volcanoes on on the other planets. Um, not exactly, but uh, you know, they, you can recognize them as volcanoes, and that's pretty wild. Do, do they um, also have any interaction with the atmosphere? I mean, I guess on, on Titan, you have methane that, in some ways, is playing the role of the greenhouse gas like CO2 here. Are Is that stuff um, coming out of volcanoes like the CO2 is on Earth?
2: Um, Methane in Titan's atmosphere actually gets broken up by sunlight. And so we know that for there still to be methane in Titan's atmosphere, which we've measured with uh, ground-based telescopes, we've measured it with, uh, with the Cassini spacecraft, for that methane to be there, it has to be being resupplied from the interior of the planet. So either some sort of geysers CO, or volcanic volcanic eruptions something is replenishing that methane back up into the atmosphere so it's a really cool place because again it's dynamic and who would have thought so far from the sun uh, extremely cold surface and yet you've got this all these earth-like processes going on it really is mind-blowing
1: and and the uh, eruption of a ice volcano what exactly is it i mean <laughs> is it what is it? Is it ice? Do they spit out ice or they what what exactly is coming out of an ice volcano?
2: You have to think of it sort of like an, an ice water mixture, what we call like a slurry, because and the other thing that's so hard to get your head around is it's ninety degrees Kelvin on the surface of Titan, which is if you want the technical explanation, that's cold, 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 cold. So right. it, it's really cold. It's
0: really freaking cold, right?
2: Exactly. <laughs> Scientifically. So yes. so when it's that cold ice behaves like rock so you really can think of its behavior of of how it's operating as being like a volcano in the inner solar system where they are made of silica-based rock you have to think of it fairly similarly in how it behaves wow
0: my pet theory is that it's um underground um organisms making the methane on titan i mean uh, you know, I, I'm an astrobiologist, so somebody has to speculate on that at least. That's the that's the big source of methane in Earth's atmosphere. Now, um, of course, there's problems with that, like it's. Very freaking cold on Titan. How do you have biology that could work at those
1: temperatures? But they, they wear sweaters.
0: As long as it's exactly as long as it's an unexplained mystery, I just have to like put out that possibility. You know, it's it's another reason to go explore and just check out what's happening there.
2: Yeah, and and to take the scientific nerdy side of that, you know, to me that's one of the things that makes Titan so compelling, and one of the reasons I did want to go land a boat in one of those seas on Titan because Titan kind of pushes our assumption over what are the limits of life in our solar system. Can you have life where it's so freaking cold, um, where chemical reactions would proceed so slowly because of that cold? So Titan really pushes our understanding of what is the nature of life and where can life evolve?
0: Another weird thing about Titan, just to bring it back to the subject of of learning about Earth um, from other planets, is that Titan has an anti-greenhouse effect. There's... You know, there's all this methane there, which uh, makes it, even though it's really cold, as we've been talking about, it's warmer on the surface of Titan than it would be just from the sun's heat. There actually is a greenhouse effect caused by methane, but yet it's not hot enough. um, that It it doesn't reach the temperature that you would calculate if you just add up all the methane, and it's because there's this haze in the upper atmosphere caused by sunlight um, eating up those methane molecules, as Ellen was saying, and that haze cools the planet to some degree and it's um what's been called the anti-greenhouse effect and that also relates to uh, some of the processes we see on earth sometimes when there's volcanoes and other things that put stuff into the atmosphere that absorbs solar energy so so we see these analogous processes happening on other worlds that that just give us a wider perspective on all these
1: uh environmental um effects that we're trying to figure out here on earth so does this haze this 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 uh Reaction of sunlight and methane creating the haze. Is that kind of like their artificial cloud cover? Well, kind of. It's not artificial, in the, as far well, as mean, we know. Well, I mean, in, ter- in terms of they're not clouds, is yeah, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. When, I, when I call it artificial cloud cover, I'm saying, like, we have clouds, yeah. you know. But,
0: but what's funny is it is analogous to something artificial. It's a lot like smog. Yeah. Right. Like you get over a city in the U.S. And so here we have the analogous thing, and it is artificial. As far as we know, nobody's making industrial smog on Titan, but it's very similar. Um, anyways, we could we could get a lot more into this and many other topics. We're going to take a... Little break here now, a pause for the cause, uh, and we'll be back in a few minutes. You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon. Dr. Funky Spoon, I'm here with Chuck Nice. That's
1: right, Dr. Funky Spoon.
0: And our guest, planetary geologist, Ellen Stofan. And uh, we are talking about uh, comparative planetology and how that helps us think about planets including the one that that we live on we're going to take a few of your cosmic queries now let's see what we got Chuck
1: absolutely of course we have questions coming from all over the internet whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any incarnation where you might find Star Talk. our listeners have uh, put out some inquiries inquiring minds want to know so let's start off with uh, I, 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 I kind of like this one because I'm sure you you will not like this question. Okay, Dr. Fonkismo? <laughs> oh great. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready for this now. Uh, and it's, simply definitely, because of there's a, it's definitely his question. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a connotation here that uh, that you may not uh appreciate. But right. next question. This is David. <laughs> uh, this is David Cadell, he says. Hey, it's David from Alabama. Or should I say, Hi, it's David from Alabama. Uh it was that's so stereotypical of me. I can't believe I said that. Um he says Could we use Mars or another nearby planet as a dumping ground Mm -hmm. for our trash and nuclear waste and any other material that we don't want on Earth? Well, Look actually, at you both shaking your head. Yeah. See, I told that's you. A, that's a <laughs> wrong question to ask a scientist. You're both just like this. <laughs> Holy
0: crap. Well, see, I mean, there's more than one way to answer that question. And <laughs> Ellen since,
1: had a, a WTF. <laughs> yeah. She had a WTF look on her face. I know. It's see, like, You want to trash the earth? <laughs>
0: it's, if it's, you could see the thought bubble out of both of our heads, we're WTF. But, of course, I'm sitting here thinking, what's the diplomatic answer to this? And the diplomatic answer is, Well, that's a really interesting question because it opens up uh, an area of inquiry that's worth thinking about, which is sort of the environmental ethics of how we approach the rest of the solar system. And it is an interesting proposition that since Mars is presumably lifeless, although we haven't determined that yet, that we could regard changing Mars in a different way than we regard changing Earth. We're not affecting a biosphere. Uh, And yet, The idea of using it as a dump is just um, unappealing aesthetically and I think ethically, but also it probably doesn't make sense in terms of physics and economics, so maybe that sort of gets us off the hook. Why would we? It would be expensive to bring nuclear waste to Mars, right? So yeah. even if you thought it was a good idea, it's probably not the cheapest way to dispose of it.
2: Right. Not to mention the risk of actually launching all that stuff off the surface of the Earth. We really wouldn't want to take that risk. And, and I guess for scientists, we look at something like, like Mars, like the Moon, almost as like international parks. Um, <laughs> there's something we want to study. There's something we we want to understand in its pristine state and you know i get it i've done work on volcanoes that are are being mined for cinders or for pumice to make stonewashed jeans and it just crushes me to see literally crushes me to see (laughs) people taking my beloved rock and crushing it and carting it away so there has to be a balance between economic development and science but dumping nuclear waste is a step too far
0: and and you mentioned something important because you know when people talk about planetary protection which is one way that that we discuss this uh, our sort of uh, efforts to not mess up mars there's two broad reasons why you don't want to do it one is the one i mentioned what if there's a biosphere there and we it would be we'd be guilty of some crime of harming them but beyond that it's it's just the scientific concern of we want to study mars because it's this pristine place where humans have not you know ever been and altered it if we just go and dump stuff and then a few decades later scientists show up and study it they're like well what's what's this weird radioactive stuff
1: you know it it destroys the experiment Mm. so how about the moon okay the moon is totally locked to the earth there's a part of it that we never see it's kind of like sweeping crap under a rug we just put it on the back side of the moon we never see it again it's like it's not even there
0: you know again i think (laughs) i think you know, obviously, you know, the, the, point of, the point of view that you're, you're sort of caricaturing is ridiculous. I hope that was an attempt at a caricature because <laughs> it was ridiculous. But, you know, there's going to be some tough calls. If we go to the moon and we set up shop, at some point we people will, I believe, uh, then we're probably going to have waste stuff and we might have an area that we, you know, like we do on Earth, we're going to have some of these issues. What do we do with our junk? What we probably won't do is indiscriminately spread it all over the surface of the moon Mm -hmm. but we might, you know, we might have a dump site
1: at some point on the moon. It's something we're going to have to figure out. We go to the moon and do the other (laughs) thing so that we can dump our junk.
2: <laughs> I, you know, I hope by the time that we would have the technology to be dumping our trash on the moon that we would have figured out how to turn our trash into energy, how yeah. to turn our trash and you know, we have to learn how to live sustainably on this planet, especially with a growing population and and to sort of dump your trash over the next hill in the ocean, we have learned, is a really bad practice right here on the Earth. So let's let's
0: figure that out. You know, that's out. that's a much better answer. I'm so glad Ellen's here because that's, I mean, in the long run, we have to learn to have more of a circular economy and mm-hmm. not to throw stuff away so much as figure out how to repurpose and reuse. And if we're going to go to space, uh, you know, we're either going to go with the knowledge of how to live sustainably or wouldn't just you know not really buying ourselves much time
1: so there you have it david the answer is we shouldn't dump our trash in space what we need are garbage fed flying cars with a flux capacitor exactly there you go very well put all right so let's move on and uh, uh let's take a look at david hall and what he has to ask david comes to us another front. david another david david says can we just Dump a bunch of ice into oceans to cool down the planet. If so, how much ice would it take? By the way, I have a pretty good ice maker. <laughs> Boy, people really want to dump things here. They really do. Here, dump things there. Well, you know what? I have to say that uh, in a way, I see what David. He might be tongue in cheek here, but you you know there 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 is a call to kind of manipulate the environment, and maybe engineer our way yeah. out of yeah. global uh, the, or climate The change. whole
0: topic of geoengineering is an interesting one. I'm very cautious about uh, these you know, schemes to just squirt a bunch of stuff in the atmosphere and cool off the earth. We have to be careful not to make the cure worse than, than the disease because we're still pretty ignorant about how the system works. The problem with you know dumping a bunch of ice in the oceans, I mean, nature's sort of doing that with the the decomposition of the the uh, polar ice, ice caps. caps, and it's trouble because of sea level rise. So you don't really want to do that. But there, there's a variation on that though, which is which I've heard, which is you know we do have this problem with the disappearing sea ice, and I've heard some schemes that people have talked about of putting up some kind of solar powered Things on the polar, the fringes of the polar ice cap that might cool and help to reconstitute the ice. Some, some intervention. We're not there yet, but it's an interesting um, model for a kind of geoengineering that is less intrusive than just like, hey, let's squirt stuff in the atmosphere where we try to help the polar ice come back um, at the fringes. And and you know, so there may, in the long run, be some role for. Uh, doing something like that. But but I think we have to be really careful when we sort of do these intrusive things. The most obvious way to engineer the earth now, the one that we have to do, is to lower our emissions of CO2 <laughs> into the atmosphere. The,
2: the National Academy actually a few years ago did a two-volume study looking at various proposals for geoengineering to uh, reverse the effects of climate change. And time, ag- time again throughout the, the two-volume study, they pointed out that it is much cheaper, much safer, much better understood to decarbonize the economy rather than having to rely on geoengineering.
1: But there are 37 coal jobs that need to maintain. We have to maintain and we'll give those, you 37 people, of jobs those 37 in people. Those 37 people, they
0: can't lose their coal job. You know why don't we build, start building wind turbines in some of those towns yeah. where they're yeah. shutting down the mines?
1: See, you know what? Let me ask you this, uh, um, uh, and thanks again for the question, David. But uh, now, you bring up the, the economy with, with respect to this. Uh, I saw a report just this morning about a coal mine in China, huge coal mine, that after, of course, years and years of overmining, collapsed. Now you got a big crater in the ground. So then it rains and it becomes like a, a very unnatural lake. It's like this Frankensteinian lake that was created. But so the Chinese go, hey, you know what we should do? Let's get a bunch of solar panels and float it out on the lake. And so where there was coal, this will become a solar farm. And it's working. Here's the problem. Doesn't employ as many coal miners. And so all the coal people hate it. How do you get a transition where people who are losing their livelihood, and I believe that there's, there's no way you can get somebody to agree with you if it hurts their pocket.
0: Yeah, I and mean, that's a, that's a good. Um, illustration Chuck of a lot of things first of all uh, you know it's an illustration of the 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 indirect effects of um, of dirty energy it's right. not just we're polluting the atmosphere we're you know we're mining these places and blowing up mountains and doing all these other things it's it's a uh, an illustration of how that can be turned around and um, used for for green energy and yet you you brought up the economic impact on the the miners and that's that's tricky um, I think you know locally in certain places obviously certain jobs are going to go away. And those of us who care about this problem on a more global, uh, wider um, scale, we have to be concerned with that. And we have to answer that. And I think the obvious answer is that there are lots of green jobs. Now, whether there are green jobs in that particular town where those coal miners are, I mean, that's a, that's a challenge for the Chinese economy, you know, to, to, uh, like I was saying before, maybe they can build wind turbines, maybe you need to um, provide something in that same location where people can um, get in on what is going to be the energy of the 21st century. And, you know, there's a lot of manufacturing to be done, solar panels, wind turbines. Um, uh, you know, we have to put people to work doing things that give them a livelihood but don't destroy the climate of the earth.
2: And I think the, the key point on that is those who, those who lead will get the biggest gains to their economy. Those who turn their back on it or pretend it's not happening are going to lose out for their economy in the long run. And that's why when you see things like us backing out of the, the Paris Accords, it's not just bad for the planet. I think it's simply bad for our economy.
1: So those who lead will be the ones who glean the biggest benefits yeah. uh, as as this because this economy is going to emerge no matter what cuz yep, it's yep. it's an inevitability. So what you're really saying is we are screwed with a red hot poker.
2: Well, <laughs> well no cuz I, I think if you hold- We are so <laughs> <laughs> no we're no. we're going
0: we're going through a tricky moment
1: but yeah
2: and i think if you look at most uh there's so many corporations oh. in this country that are doing the right thing who are who are looking as to how to, how to cut their carbon footprint how to use water sensibly I think actually American companies are are leading the government right now and saying this is inevitable. We are going to go to a much lo- lower carbon fu- future, and how can we be the profitable company in the long run? And I, I think corporate America is actually ahead right now.
0: I mean, if you were a whaler in in Nantucket in sometime in you know the eighteen hundreds, yes. you might be saying, "Oh no, you know they, they, they're phasing out whale oil. Are these jobs are going to go away? You know that the you know the world's coming to an end." But it didn't, you know. They were <laughs> the, the whalers. Yeah, that way of life went away because it had to. And uh, there are new sources of energy. The same thing's going to happen. There are winners and losers in the short run, but in the long run, uh, we all win if we find a way to power our economy in such a way that's not ruining the climate we depend on. See
1: now, what you just said right there. Um, by the way, I, I I knew that man from Nantucket. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying uh, but what you just said right there. I think politically is the problem because you were very um, decisive and very clear about two things. One, some people are going to get hurt because you're making a transition from one type of economy to another. But two, if you take care of those people, we are all going to be better off and there'll be even more jobs. Right. No politician says that because they don't want to piss off the first part. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Change. Change is difficult, <laughs> you know, and uh, and their people will resist, especially when they're pocketbook issues. But it's also inevitable. So the smart uh, politicians, the smart citizens, think about how to ease that. Right. right
2: you have to think of how to take advantage of what's going to be, but you have to offer, offer people a positive view of, of the future. You have to not frighten them into retreating to the past.
1: All of those people can come and build a big, beautiful wall. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Plenty of jobs for everyone. Okay, let's... Uh, Chuck, have you ever thought of running for office? (laughs) Running from office is more like (laughs) it for me. All right, here we go. Here we go. Uh, This is Joshua Holmes, and Joshua says this. What is the likelihood of Earthlings being an elder race of sentient beings? As we discover new worlds, could we learn that we are less primitive than others in the galaxy? Oh, my God. I don't know why, but that question just depressed the hell out of me.
2: (laughs) yeah you know i I guess you know if you if you look um at our understanding right now we're certainly in the infancy infancy of understanding life beyond earth we've discovered over the last three years that there are thousands of planets around other stars where we now know where to go to look in our own solar system where there could be evidence of life whether it's mars or jupiter's moon europa or saturn's moon enceladus so we We know where to go to look, but when we're talking in our own solar system, we're really talking microbes. We know we're the only complex life in the solar system. So when you think about sentient life, complex life in other solar systems, I think you always have to reflect back how hard it is to get complex life. For complex life to evolve on this planet, it took Billions of years. It took relatively stable conditions. Life came close to being wiped out several times Mm -hmm. here on this planet. So when it comes to complex life, I think it's few and far between when you look at how close we've come to trying to wipe ourselves out. Complex life is hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of these things where we can play these guessing games and educated guessing games. We have to explore. It's the same thing with finding life, finding complex life. We can reason our way around the problem, but we'll we'll know the answer when we explore the solar system, explore the exoplanets, see what's out there. In the meantime, it's sort of fun kind of applied philosophy. It's possible we're one of the older races in the galaxy, like the questioner proposed. It's also possible that we're the babies, we're the youngest race in the galaxy. You know, we, we just have to um, realize that, that we're just beginning to explore the universe. And so there, there are a lot of interesting possibilities here that are, that are very hard to rule out. I think we're going to take another pause here. Okay. And um, when we come back, we will take a few more of your questions on cosmic queries. You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm David Grinspoon. I'm here with Chuck Nice hey. and our guest Ellen Stofan. Hello. And we are doing Cosmic Queries answering your questions. What do you got, Chuck? All right, let's uh
1: let's go to Ali Tahiri. And Ali's coming to us from Twitter and wants to know this. Um is there any chance we can reverse global warming? So, that begs the question, you know, you have to You have to say definitively we caused it, and then if definitively we caused it, could we fix it?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say we have to fix it. It's kind of like, you know, you broke that thing, you bought it. You know, it's our responsibility now. We are perturbing the climate of Earth. First, we have to just sort of stop the wanton vandalism that we're uh, perpetrating on the biosphere right now but then I think yeah we you know I imagine humans in the 22nd and 23rd century are going to be looking back on the damage we did and going how can we speed up the, the remediation of this the the earth does naturally recover from climate change because of the carbon cycle but that can take a million years so I think we will uh, in the future be trying to fix the damage find ways to pull carbon out of the atmosphere um, but uh, you know, our first task is to just kind of take stock of what we're doing and, and stop the uh, stop the bleeding of, of CO two into the atmosphere. Uh, you you mentioned yeah. So first, you have to accept that humans can change the climate. If we can change it one way, we can change it the other. There are people that doubt that, but really, if you look at the long term history of the Earth, um, we are not the first species to come along and change the planet. Oh, in, in fact, um, the uh, There have been other times when life has come along and radically changed the planet and changed the climate. A famous example is um, about a little over 2 billion years ago, the cyanobacteria, these little um, blue-green algae that live live in the ocean, they uh, invented photosynthesis. And by putting so much oxygen in the atmosphere, they poisoned the planet with all that oxygen, which, you know, life couldn't handle at first. Now we yeah. love oxygen, but it was poison when it first appeared. And they probably crashed the climate, um, co- collapsing the the methane greenhouse that was warming Earth at that time and led to, to uh, what we call snowball Earth, a global glaciation. So that was like a major... Um, extinction event and a major catastrophe for the planet that was brought about by these innocent little algae. So so we're not the first planet wreckers only there's a difference now isn't there?
2: Right well and, and I think it's important because I think for a lot of people they think oh how can we're just lowly humans how can we actually change this huge atmosphere and I always like to bring up that that perspective the astronauts get from orbiting the earth in the International Space Station where instead of looking like this massive thing you see the atmosphere for what it is this really fragile thin, thin layer, layer huh? above this giant planet and so the fact that life has altered the atmosphere in the past to the point where that life cyanobacteria now only live in small niches so humans are changing the atmosphere when we started doing it you know we were not evil we, you know it, it, it's it's not like we're bad guys we just we've now figured out that we're changing the atmosphere we have the power to fix it there's going to be some degree of warming no matter what we do, because we've already put so much CO2 in the atmosphere, but we can change the tide. We can we can turn things, and and we need to do it. But the problem is, we can't wait four years. We need to be doing it now.
0: I like your point that we, you know it doesn't make us bad guys just that we're changing the planet. We sort of have stumbled into this situation. We're mm-hmm. doing what life does, which is multiply and change its environment. And then
2: and buy stuff and make stuff. Buy stuff, and, make
0: stuff. <laughs> dry, yeah. Drive around. All life does that. Yeah. It's, oh, oh, it's a natural yeah. thing yeah, for life to That's drive around in cars. But then, but then, then we find out that we're perturbing the environment, and at that point, it does become our responsibility. So now that we're becoming aware and we're spreading the word, and of course, there's reaction against that. But but then it does become responsibility, and then you know we do become the bad guys if we don't uh, sort of correct our mistake once we've. Realize we're making it. So uh, come on, humans! Like let's let's do this. Let's not be the bad guys of planet Earth. Yeah, humans. And, let's not,
2: and let, let's not end up like this cyanobacteria having to, you know, find little places on Earth to That's live right. because we've poisoned it
0: for Yeah, ourselves. look what happened to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So now, is it possible since they did it once that they could do it again? Could we just kind of like uh, rustle up a bunch of cyanobacteria and let them pump a bunch of oxygen into the air? And-
2: <laughs> you know, this goes back to that whole issue of geoengineering. And, and to me, it's let's correct our bad behavior. Okay. Again, which we didn't know was bad, right. but now we know it is. Let's correct that. That's the safest, most planetary, respectful course to take. Absolutely,
0: that's that's step one for sure. Is like let's just stop, uh, you know, the bleeding of, of CO two. But I mean, it is it is interesting as you point out. Um, you know, we talk about what kind of technology could help us, and you think, well, wouldn't it be great if there was something that could use solar energy and um, pull CO two out of the atmosphere and make oxygen and um you know make fuel or food. And Wouldn't coffee. that be and amazing? Cappuccino. And, and cappuccino. Yeah. And and there is something that does that. It's called a leaf, right? So um so that's a pretty miraculous technology. And and in the long run you know, people talk about enhanced Um, photosynthesis and maybe uh, well, obviously planting more trees but maybe in the long run even some kind of engineered enhanced photosynthesis. That's not our most immediate need but thinking about those people in the 22nd century who are going to be fixing the damage we've done, that may be part of the answer is to find a way to sort of enhance and perfect that technology that nature's already discovered which is simply using solar energy
1: to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Nice! Okay, you had me at leaf. I'm telling you, <laughs> that's pretty doggone cool. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that makes a lot of like tech companies upset, though. Like,
2: no, I tell you, biomimicry is one of the big areas that I absolutely love. You know, it's looking at how do animals cool themselves, how do animals or organisms use energy, how do they convert sunlight into energy. We're right. actually learning by going back to the biology that's been perfected over hundreds of millions of years on this earth and saying, "Wow, evolution." Had it gets it right, let's yeah. go. Let's go look at it to learn.
0: Nature solved a lot of these problems just through trial and error over billions yeah, exactly. of years, and we can learn a lot
1: from that. That's very cool. I like it. What did you call it? And
2: biomimicry.
1: Biomimicry. So taking what's in nature and trying to recreate it. Because it already works in nature.
2: Right. It's already been, as David said, there's been millions of years of trial and error to get it right.
1: Okay, that makes too much sense. I'm going to say no one's going to do that. (laughs) 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 All right. Let's move on. This is Abby McHugh. Abby McHugh is coming coming to us from Twitter. She says, is there any other planet that has observed a similar rate of climate change as we have in the last few centuries and what happened to that planet? Ah. So do we have a model, any kind of model? Well, there's definitely been catastrophic
0: climate change in Earth's past and on other planets. Um, You know, the, the thing that's unusual now is uh, that there's so many things changing at once, not just the climate, but the, the uh, land use and the chemistry of the ocean and the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle. We sort of are bombarding the Earth with all these changes at once, and we're trying to sustain this global civilization that's very dependent on the coastlines being in a certain place and the precipitation being a certain way for our agriculture. We're fragile in that way. The Earth has been through um, drastic climate changes before, um, and it turns out, yes, um, we see evidence of other planets. I mean, Venus went through a huge climate change, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, we think it used to be a lot more Earth-like. We have some clues. We want to go back and explore more and make sure we understand that history. We don't really know the time scale over which that happened, but certainly there have been catastrophic events. Well, on Mars, there have been, you know, there was early in its history, there were these massive impacts. Those must have caused... Huge climate changes. Um, I don't know. What do you What do you think? Other uh, drastic, uh, catastrophic climate changes on other planets?
2: You know there were, but uh, but in general, we don't know much about the rates. That's where we're really lacking information. Okay. Right. This is some of the questions we have when we go to explore Venus, when we go to explore Mars, and it's part of the reason why we don't just send one spacecraft to those planets. We need orbiters, we need landers, because we're trying to build up this story of the planet's past to help inform us about natural climate change to help us understand better how to cope with what's happening now due to human-induced climate change.
0: Yeah, that's a good point that we, we don't really know the rates. I mean, the reason why we know a lot about the rates of past climate change on Earth is because we have things like ice cores, we have detailed history. We don't have anything like that for other planets. I mean, eventually we probably go to Mars and do ice cores on the on the polar caps, and maybe we'll have as good a record, but we, we just... Um, we're much more speculating when we when we try to get the rates of change on other planets at this point, given the the amount we've explored so far.
1: Cool, very cool. All right, let's uh, let's uh, see what Oscar. Okay, Vilabos. I think I said that right. Sorry, Oscar. Oscar Villabos, uh, coming to us from Twitter said, "What are the long term and short term effects of human health because of climate change?"
2: You know, one of the things that we really worry about with climate change is what we, um, we call disease vectors. So there's a lot of um, diseases that are uh, carried by water um, insects that okay. are involved with standing water, mosquitoes. mosquitoes. So you look at dengue fever, uh, mm-hmm. chicken Gaia, um, uh, Zika, uh, obviously malaria, all of these. So as you get warming, as you get increased tropical rainfall, you have more chance of these diseases moving into regions where they haven't been before. And so we really worry about the spread of tropical diseases further and further out of the tropics. And there's a lot of people working on this question right now. Obviously, the other thing we worry about in human health, and there was just a paper that came out not that long ago in Science Magazine, really, talking about the economic impact of climate change, looking at rising temperatures in urban areas. For example, a couple years ago when there was a heat wave, there was a lot of people in Europe, there were a lot of deaths attributed to high temperatures because people didn't have adequate air conditioning. Mm -hmm. So if we look over the next 50, 100 years due to rising temperatures and the potential that has for human mortality, we really start worrying about it and thinking, what are we going to do to cope with this?
0: Yeah, that's those are really good points. And then, of course, also in the long run, we um, are um, unsure, but concerned about the effect on like precipitation patterns and how that would uh, affect agriculture. And things, you know, the bleaching of the coral reefs and how that will affect the marine ecosystem, the question of whether we'll be able to sustain um, the amounts of healthy agriculture and fisheries and all that over the long run with all these uncertain changes is also somewhat in doubt. And so, you know, the, obviously famine is, <laughs> is, is a sort of a worst case possibility. And, and then with sea level rise, you have massive potential massive displacement. And obviously that leads to human health problems as well. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around the end end of the sort of the worst case scenario. But that's a good reason to not run the experiment.
1: Exactly. I'm going to take everything you just said and tell it to my children as a bedtime story. (laughs) (laughs) That's my new bedtime story now.
2: But then it has to end with saying, but that we're going to decarbonize the economy. We're going to rely on renewable energy and... Yeah,
0: can't you tell? Okay, I'm gonna make that the kids. last two pages tell <laughs> from the perspective of a 23rd century time traveler who's telling them how everything came out okay.
1: Oh, that you know what? That's cool. I like that actually. Yeah, tell,
0: tell them Uncle David yeah, today. Uncle it's David, be all right.
1: Uncle David wrote you this book. Starts with dengue fever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's. Uh, Let's take a... People to
2: me at dinner, sitting next to me at dinner parties, and they'll turn to me and say, so is climate change real? And I'm like, by the end of dinner, I'm going to have you under the table. You know, but you don't want to do that. You don't want to make people feel that this isn't something that we can tackle because I'm not just being a Pollyanna. I honestly believe we can turn the tide on this, but we have to do it now. We have to take it seriously.
0: Some people do feel that they want everybody to be really scared and freaked out as a way of... Having them sense the
1: urgency, yeah, motivation.
0: But I think that that's dangerous because you can also get people to just give up, and that's that's not good.
1: Or what you could do is you could create like reefer madness. You know, you remember that whole that yeah. reefer madness it was just like you look in the mirror and you see like a monster looking back because you took two tokes off of a doobie, and then all of a sudden the kid actually goes out and tries some weed. Right, and it's just like did
0: it, did that really work as dude, a campaign? This
1: is, this is amazing. <laughs> this stuff is great. Well, I don't know what that movie was talking no, about. I mean that's a
0: good it, point because people did ultimately didn't take that seriously, seriously because it right. was such a scare tactic. Exactly. And we that's don't want about, people to like think oh well, they're just trying to scare us. We want people to take seriously what we're saying.
1: Yeah, then you know so you if you can get into the sky is falling uh, kind of area. Yeah. All right. Um do we have time to Are we are we actually out of time? Uh, oh
0: my god. Man, well. No freaking way. I guess uh, we've we've had such a good time talking to each other about dengue fever and other <laughs> pleasantries here that we've burned right through our minutes. So unfortunately, we're going to have to.
1: Where did the time go? Oh, oh God. We can't end on that. That's too a Yeah, arm.
0: No, we're ending on our note of optimism. Ellen and I are both convinced that we will find solutions. And I think Chuck is reluctantly uh, considering that we could be right.
1: Yeah, I am. You know what? And here's the deal. Every time, you know, every time we hang out, you know, so I'm from the camp of urgency. But every time we hang out, man, I got to say, I get, I get that much more encouraged to believe that this is going to be a solved problem.
0: All right. Well, if I'm if I'm bringing Chuck around, them, that alone is reason enough to do this. I hope you've all enjoyed hanging out with us uh, during this show. Uh, this has been Star Talk All Stars with our guest Ellen Stofan and Chuck Nice, and I'm David Grinspoon, Doctor Funky Spoon. And remember, folks, keep asking questions, stay curious, and keep it funky.